Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 tonight. Uh, in our series here, going through the uh, 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 Old Testament, we're going through Exodus, and we've just finished, we've just completed the Ten Commandments. We were in the Ten Commandments for ten weeks, plus a couple of breaks and all. But uh, remember the Ten Commandments and their importance. Uh, uh, the law given to God's people as he separated them from the 400 years of bondage. He's creating a, a new heart, new nation, and, and this really new people that have been outside of his, he, they, they've been in his care and his watchful eye, but they've been outside in this foreign pagan land under the idolatrous worship and practices there in Egypt. And he's delivered them, as you recall, after 400 years through Moses. Moses becomes a type of Christ. The people are delivered by Moses, and actually, we are delivered from our sin in Christ. And so Moses is a very key figure. Tonight, he plays another wonderful role of mediator. We have a mediator between us and God the Father. That's the man, Jesus Christ. Moses becomes a picture of that mediator. But, but in this new life, three months from bondage in Egypt, the children of Israel have wandered into the wilderness, the desert of Sin, and they're at the mountain of Sinai, or Sinai, you can look at the spelling, very interesting, they're at the mountain of Sinai, and they're at Horeb, God comes and meets with the mediator, Moses, Moses has access to God, he goes right up to God, he sees the burning bush, he hears God's voice. He starts to make treks back and forth, and the people are watching Moses go back and forth up and down the mountain. They're very fearful because of what they hear and what they see on that mountain. The, sh the ground is shaking that they're standing on. The mountain is looks like a volcano. There's smoke coming from the mountain. There's fire on the mountain. There's thunderings and lightnings on the mountain. They're afraid of the mountain. But they want to get closer, as you recall, in the earlier stage of their, their uh, camping there at Mount Horeb. They want to get closer, and God makes a perimeter. He says, I don't want you up here. You're not holy enough. You can't walk on this ground. Moses, remember, had to take his shoes off to get near God. He was called by God up there, but the people weren't. They can't come up there. Why? Because they're sinful. They're unholy. This section that we're looking at tonight really has to do with holiness and how God prepares and then makes his people holy for for worshiping him. But there at Mount Horeb, God gives them 10 laws. He points to their sinful condition. The 10 laws were not to bring salvation, the 10 laws to, re to help them understand that they're sinners. And as they hear these 10 laws, can you imagine the people, they're, they're listening to these 10 laws going, oh, oh, I broke that one. Oh, man, God is righteous and God is holy. And each one of the laws come down and they know that they need a savior. They need help outside themselves. They can't do it on their own. That's what the law is for. The law never was intended to save. The law was just a point to a savior that they couldn't save themselves. So when these commandments are broken, fellowship between God and the people is broken. And it's a way of life for these people. They, they're learning about God, this very early stages of, of their new nation and their new life. But these laws, again, they point to uh, broken fellowship with God. They're not a way of salvation. Paul wrote this. Here's the verse. You know it in the New Testament. Therefore, the law was our 
instructor, our tutor, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by, how is a man justified? How are we made righteous before God? There's only one way, faith in Christ. You have to put your faith in Christ in order to be justified. That's the work that God does, just as if I'd never sinned. You, you become justified based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's, a, it's really a position, spiritually speaking. Right now, you're in a position, you're sitting, right? Spiritually, you were in sin, and then because you put your faith in Christ, God changed your position from sin, darkness, and disfellowship with God. He puts you in the light. He puts you spiritually in a new position. It's called justification. It's something that God does, the work that he does. Now, here at the end of chapter 20 tonight, we're going to see the reaction to the people, to the laws that were given, and all the thundering that's going on on the mountain. We're going to see uh, their reaction to all of those things and the spectacular display of God's presence and all those things I, I mentioned, thunder, lightning, and a, and a trumpet. I was going to bring my chauffeur down here. I should have the sound of the trumpet. But I've entitled this section, Approaching God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text tonight. I pray that you would teach us the truth, that we would not be bored with these Old Testament books, but we'd find in them truth. We'd find in them your specific way for people. And in this case, how to approach you. You're teaching your people how to approach you in a holy way. So teach us tonight as we read the text, in Jesus we pray, amen. Now all the people, verse 18, witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled. And they, they recoiled, they stood off, they ran away. Verse 19, then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear you, but don't let God speak to us because we'll, it'll kill us. They're fearful of God. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people, they stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Now, we see the reaction of the people there in verse 18, my first point here. They've just had this incredible experience. Now, they're hearing the voice of God, by the way. Moses is communicating these, but they're hearing the voice of God. What does it sound like? Trumpet, thunderings. His voice is so loud, the, the earth shakes. I mean, and, and, and they don't go, oh, well, what's that noise? They're like, ah, they're terrified. They're freaking out. They're running away. That's what we're seeing here. When they witnessed all those things, verse 18, they stood afar off. You could translate that. They feared, they trembled, and they ran away, basically. They stampeded away from the base of the mountain where they were camped. Now, when they first got to Sinai, the very same thing happened. They were crowding around the mountain. They wanted to get closer and see what Moses was doing going up and down. But they got to a certain place, and then God warned them if they got any closer, that they crossed the line, the boundary. If they got any closer to him, that he would inflict judgment. They would die. He'd kill them. So they knew they couldn't go a certain distance. They had to stay away. 
And God did not want the people to be on that ground. Why? Because he was there. God was actually there, and he didn't want these sinful people there. He's providing a way for them, but he wants them to know and learn respect. They've been in Egypt. They've been under idolatrous practices. They were under all kinds of of strange rituals, and they have to learn a new respect, a reverence, a fear of God. We're going to talk a lot about that tonight. You're going to see that. Do you have a fear for God? Do you have a reverence, a respect for God? Is it a fear? Do, do we recoil in fear today? Do we, are we afraid to approach the word? Are we afraid to pray? Are we afraid to come to the Lord? No. We're called to boldly come into his presence and, and to ask and to seek and to knock again and again. But we are to have this fear, this reverence for the Lord. And I'm going to explain what that is. But we're seeing that here with these people. They were afraid, actually fearful. They were trembling. They were afraid that they would be snuffed out here. And again, they were in his presence. They've learned what we need to learn. All of us need to learn the same thing. When you're in the presence of God, you better show respect. I don't believe God kills anybody, but I do believe we do things that are, that are inappropriate, like talking to your friends about your holy God and how he's provided and how you're praying to him. And we, we need to be reverent when we ask the Lord, not of these and thous, no, no, just honestly before him and asking, but not ever saying, oh, you know, the big guy upstairs, I got the big guy, he's on my side, the big guy. Really, the big guy? Is that all, the, is that all God is to you? He is so much more. And we, as God's people, we must be reverent. We must have a proper fear and a proper reverence for the Lord. Now, again, they realize they're in his presence, and they see the seriousness of their sin. Why? Why why are they so sensitive to that? Because he's just told them ten laws, ten things. So they're very sensitive to who they are, and they're before the Lord, and they see the thunderings, they hear his voice, and they're like, I'm busted. That's, that's why. They know that they're sinful and they're busted. They're, they're, they, they, they're, uh, they've approached the Almighty and they know that they're undone, really. Now, here's the application. I think that we need to learn that we can't just passively come to God or worship God on our own terms, if we like it, if it fits our need. We need to come to God and really understand that we need to be obedient. It's not about us. It's always about him. Worship is about him. Reading the scripture is an act of worship. It's about him. Serving the Lord. It's about what would please him. I learned a long time ago as a worship leader for many years that, Lord, were you pleased with the worship today, tonight, whenever? Were you pleased? Not if I was pleased. Not if I liked what was happening, the vibe or whatever, but is the Lord pleased? And that involves, I think, the congregation as we lift up praise to him. Are we engaged? Do we see God high and lifted up? Are we really worshiping him in spirit and in truth? A lot of times we're way too casual with God. And we don't take his commands seriously enough. I think we can all learn to have a holy fear, a proper fear. Again, that's what this text is really about. These Israelites have now finally understood that God is holy and they're undone 
and they shouldn't be there. So they, they hear them, they, they see the thunderings, they see the lightnings, they, hear the, the, they, they, they feel and experience the earth moving, they run, they run away. They stand afar off is what uh, we're told here in the text. And then notice, notice here though, God is teaching them something very important. As they're trembling, God wants them to know that they need someone between their fear and his holiness, that they need a mediator. They need someone in between them. That's what God is teaching. And notice the request to the people here. They get it. Verse 19, they said to Moses, 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 you, you speak with us and we'll listen to you, but don't let God talk to us. Don't let God speak to us because we will die. In other words, they're asking for a mediator. They're asking for someone in between them and a holy and a righteous and a judging God that sees right into the depths of their hearts. They, they get it, and they need a mediator. They, they're asking for mediation there because they fear God, and they ran from his presence. They know that they're sinners. So that's what the Ten Commandments do. They, they reveal that you are a sinner, that you've broken. If you've broken one, you've broken all of the laws. The laws... All they're there for is to help you understand that you're a lawbreaker and that you need salvation or you need a savior. In this case, they need a mediator. And from the time they left Egypt, think about this. Moses has been their mediator. He's been their redeemer. He's been their deliverer, right? They couldn't do it on their own. God chose Moses from among his people. God separated him, God called him, and Moses didn't really want to go at first, but he finally did. Finally was obedient to God, brought his brother Aaron. Aaron became a spokesman because Moses said, I'm not a man of eloquent speech, I I can't do this. So God brings Aaron alongside, and Aaron becomes the spokesman of Pharaoh. Finally, the children are delivered, and for three months they've been walking with Moses in the desert, but from the very beginning they complain, remember? We don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. We might as well, we're going to die out here. Moses, why did you bring us? Remember? They were complaining, complaining, complaining. That's all they did. And Moses, with his patience and gentleness, I, I believe he was gentle, He would go and he would pray and God would provide. And then they had meat, quail to eat. And then they had manna, the most lovely, luscious food that they gathered daily. And water that came from places where water wouldn't normally come in the middle of the desert. These were all miracles of God as he provided. And Moses, Moses was the one they blamed for why they were out there. It's Moses, Moses, Moses. But now they're at the foot of the mountain. Do you see that their attitudes changed? We don't want to talk to God. You talk to God for us. See, now they're seeing Moses place a mediation between them and the Father. That's what God is helping them understand. That's what this text really helps us to understand as well. So God has exalted Moses in their very eyes, just as he told Moses he would do. And the people now see him as their mediator. Now, secondly... Notice the people commit their obedience to God through Moses. This is a real key point. Verse 19, we will hear, but Moses, you just keep us safe from God. That's really what they're saying. They they fear death. They're afraid. They've moved away. Don't let God speak to us or we're going to die. That's what they're saying. They're afraid. 
So they fear and they run and they hide under Moses' skirt is the way I see it. And they're begging Moses now to stand in between them and God. So it's an amazing reaction. But again, you can see how God is trying to elevate his servant Moses in their eyes. So they'll listen to Moses. Because again, for three months, they've been whining and complaining. Now, God's purpose in delivering his people from Egypt, there's one main purpose. I'm going to remind you of that. And it was to worship him. God knew where his people were. They were in bondage all that time. And his desire was to draw near to them, but he couldn't. His people were in that area of Egypt that was idolatrous. He, he wouldn't go there. So he calls them out of Egypt. I want you to come out and worship me. We saw that over and over in the earlier chapters of of uh, Exodus, Exodus 5.1, here's the verse behind me, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, that they would come and worship me in the wilderness. That was God's heart. He wouldn't do it there in sin or in Egypt, which represents sin. Whenever you see Egypt, it's, it's a it's a metaphor of sin. They were in sin, these people, but they were delivered out of sin by Moses, the Redeemer, just like we are delivered out of our sin by our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The picture is uncanny, but again, God wants to bring his people out so they might worship him. And now we come to chapter 20, and they're free. They're free of bondage. They're out of Egypt. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're in the very presence of God. And when God comes himself, the God of creation comes himself to that mountain and begins to speak to them, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just, their minds are blown. They're, they're afraid. Moses, don't let him talk to us. We're, we're going to die if we hear his voice. That's, that's their reaction there. They don't want to hear the voice of the Almighty. They want Moses to speak in his place. So they know that they need a mediator, and God is providing for them this mediation here between him and them. And they beg Moses to do what God has already appointed Moses to do. So God's called Moses, places him to do that very ministry. The people reject it. Now they accept it. So God had to take them through this process before they got to that place. So we see the reaction and the request of the people. Number three, the reassuring words of Moses. Look at verse 20. So Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and his fear may be before you. That's the test, that his fear may be before you, that you might not sin. So Moses explains here why God has come, and, and, the, and the purpose is good. It's for their benefit, for their good. Now, there are three reasons listed here. Let's look at those real quick. Number one, to test you, he says. He's come to show them that they need a mediator, number one. He's, he's showing them. Moses, they had rejected, but now they've, they're accepting him. They're asking for Moses at this time. The role that Moses was called to do, that he's fulfilling now. Later on, after Moses, the children of Israel are led by prophets. God speaks to the prophets, to the people, the mediator. And then he uses priests between the people and himself. And then God uses, and we see this throughout the text, kings, the kings. Remember the kings in the Bible. So we have the prophets, the priests, the king. First Moses, 
and then these other mediators. And ultimately, in the New Testament, we have a mediator, the great God and King and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He becomes our mediator. Here's the verse in 1 Timothy. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. So Jesus is our mediator. But these people needed a test so that they would recognize Moses as their mediator. And their test brought fear, and that fear brought them to recognize, we need Moses. Moses, you need to stand in the gap. You need to stand before us or in between God and us. So the first is a test. Secondly, this test was to instill a healthy fear of God. Notice there in verse 20, that his fear may be before you. Now, God, or Moses here is saying that God's awesome visual and audible display, the thunderings, the lightning, and all that stuff, that, that even his vocal display, all of those things were designed to get a response from the people. He wanted them to fear him. That was God's purpose to lead them to a place where they would obey him. He wants them to have a reverential fear. And then notice at the end of the verse, so that you may not sin. These people here had experienced a a healthy fear of God. But I, I love the truth about God here. He's merciful. He's good. He's only good to these people. He's only provided for them in the desert, all of their physical needs and all of their deliverance needs from Egypt as well. So God, he's been providing for them manna, quail, and water. He's redeemed them out of Egypt. And now Moses is their mediator. But at the very presence of God, they still fear. They tremble. They run. That's what they're doing here. Now, when you're... Uh, reading the scriptures and, and you see that we are to have a fear of God or you hear somebody talk about a reverential fear of God. Obviously, we're not talking about um, just literally shaking or trembling at the voice of God, but that healthy fear of God. On one hand, I want to be close to the Lord. On the other hand, too close to the Lord reveals my sin, right? So, so I I, I don't always want to get that close, but I, but I still desire to be close to the Lord. And he desires for me to be close to him. That was his purpose in creating. He wants to have fellowship, intimate fellowship with, with us. But it's very interesting. You want to be close to the Lord, but on the other hand, you realize that you're a sinner and you have no business being near a holy God. And that's what God is teaching them. One commentator said, there's the sense that I don't have any right to be in the presence of God, and at the same time, it's the thing that I long for the most. I think you understand that. You just long to be in his presence. One of my favorite books, and I read it to my children several times, was written by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a brilliant author. His metaphor, his fiction... Christian fiction is fantastic, off the scale. But he wrote a collection of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in those books, if you've never read them, you should read them. You can buy them online. You can, I've got old copies. Mine will fall apart. We've had them so long and I've read them so many times. 
The very first one's called the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And it's the lion that represents Christ, the metaphor of Christ, the lion. His name is Aslan, 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 Aslan. And he's the lion, and he, he rules, and, and the, the, the creatures that live on this, in this world, they, they look for the lion to come. They, the lion will bring justice. The lion will bring peace to them. And one of the kids that end up going to this fictional land asks the question about a lion. They hear about a lion. Is it a real lion? Is he a man? What is this? And then their question is, is he safe? I, I, I'm not sure if I want to meet a lion, says Susan. And then the answer is, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. And the question, again, is, well, is he safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? C.S. Lewis writes, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And the picture there is, is clear. God is the one who brings judgment. Is he safe? No, he's not safe for a sinner. But he's good, and he's merciful, and he's kind. We're to have that same kind of fear where, where we respect him for his ability to see the, the heart and make a, a judgment that's true and correct. We're to respect him that way and understand that he's good at the same time. That's what a reverential fear of God contains, those two elements. Just this fear that's reverential and, and knowing that he's only good. And as a Christian, you can't be... You just can't be drawn close enough to the Lord. You want to be close to the Lord. You want to spend time with the Lord. You desire to be close to him. So we're to have a healthy fear of God. There's two sides. On the one hand, you realize that you have no business being before him because he's holy. On the other hand, you desire to be in his presence. That's what it means to have a healthy fear of God, a reverential fear of God. Again, there's a difference between being frightened by God and fearing God, having that reverential fear. When we properly fear God, we, we know that he knows our hearts and he knows us, but we understand he's filled with grace and love and he's good. And so we want to draw closer to him. We're in awe of his power. We're in awe of his holiness and purity. God wants us to be close to him. And the only way I can truly be close to him is to have that reverential fear. He's not the big boy upstairs. He's a powerful, sovereign, all-knowing God. And we need to show great respect and have a healthy fear for him. So Moses, he gives us these three reasons. Number one was to test. Number two, to instill fear or a healthy fear. And then number three, that you may not Sin. Notice it says that at the end of verse 20. A proper fear of God results in a, a desire to obey God and his laws. If you're a Christian and your desire is to know what the word is and then to be obedient, that's proper. 
You fear God in his judgment, but you have a, a healthy desire to obey God. Let me give you a couple of verses real quick. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So both knowledge and wisdom start by what? Fearing the Lord, respecting the Lord. And then Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived, in Ecclesiastes 12, he says this. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is what we are created for, to be obedient to the Lord, to fear him in a reverential way and to keep his commandments and draw close to him and have communion with him. Now think about Solomon for a moment. Solomon had all the women he ever could want. Remember, the thousand, almost a thousand wives. He had all the money and all the power that anyone could ever want. But in his life, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, it's all vain, vanity upon vanity. All his power, all his money, all his Women and wealth, all those things didn't mean anything when he came to the end of his life. He just said, it's all worthless. It's all vain. And then he wrote this, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. So going back here to Exodus 20 and verse 20, do not fear, for God has come to test you, Moses says, and that his fear may be before you that you may not sin. Moses understood this. Moses is going back and forth, up and down the mountain to get the commandments. He's done this over and over before the people. Now the people understand. Moses can do it. We can't. Moses becomes their mediator. And now they have a proper understanding or a fear, a reverence for God. What happens is their behavior starts to change. It's, they're starting to mature. They're starting to grow and understand their relationship to God. They need to fear God. They can't just go down to the idol store like in Egypt. They can't just uh, pray to some God for rain or for the crops to grow, some God of their imagination, some God carved out of wood or stone. But they have to have a reverential fear of God, and that changes their behavior. Let me just use this illustration here about people that you might know that have, have always rejected God. They've always rejected God. They, do, they don't believe in God. They avoid God. They don't believe he can be known. He's, God to them is, is aloof. He's out in the cosmos somewhere just doing what he does. He's not involved in, the, the, in man's lives. He's not involved in the planet at all. That, a lot of people believe that. He has no interaction with us. But then there are other people that stay away from God because they enjoy the pleasure of their sin. They, they would rather do their sin than be obedient to God. They don't want to know God. They, they've heard that at church, but they, they, don't, they, they don't want it because they want to enjoy their sinful pleasures. They wrongly believe that when you become a Christian, you've got to give up all the fun in your life. Now, that's not true, is it? I, I believe that if you really want to know adventure, you, you become a Christian. I remember that song Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote, Saddle Up Your Horses. We got a trail to blaze. I love that song. The great adventure. The Christian life is a great adventure. 
And yes, we give up things at the very beginning of it, things that, you know, that take our attention. But the Lord begins in your lifetime, if you've been a Christian for any amount of years, he'll begin to give you things back in your life. He'll let you do things that you used to do and that you put aside because you wanted to love God with everything. And then God allows you. He gives you the desire of your heart. I love that about the Lord. Some people think that being a Christian is boring. But I say you haven't lived until you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That's when life really, really begins. We know that as Christians, Romans 8. All things that I do, they're going to work together for good. They're not all fun. We struggle at times, but all things are going to work together for good. That's the life of the believer. The people who don't believe in God, they're, they're really gambling on their eternity. I read this, and you may know the story, but I read this today. I, I actually looked it up and listened to the broadcast back in 1982. There was an artist in New York City who did this modern art. He took a shotgun loaded it, put a 100-year timer on it, and then put a chair in front of it. And then you paid money to sit there in that chair for 15 seconds. People were gambling on their lives for the adventure, right? They don't know God. They don't know anything. They don't know if life is is where they're going to go when they die. So they would pay money and sit in front of this shotgun now, I, I, 1982, I mean, who would do that? It sounds far-fetched, but it's very interesting. A, a foolish person gambles their life that same way. They don't come to God. They reject God. They reject his word. And they're gambling. They're just like sitting in front of a shotgun, not knowing when it's going to go off. People ignore God, and they risk dying without knowing Christ. Here in the text, we see the reaction of the people, the request, the reassuring words of Moses, and then finally here, the reconciliation of Moses. Notice verse 21. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near. The thick darkness where God was. Now, Moses is 80 at this time. He's 80 years old. Uh, Walking, he's viable but probably walking slowly. And the people are watching him as he's walking into the cloud. It's dark. They're afraid, but they're watching Moses now, and their eyes are on him as he slowly walks back up the mountain where the thundering and the lightning are taking place there. But the people, they just remained at a distance. It's Moses that becomes their mediator. In the book of Hebrews, I love the book of Hebrews. It's all about Jesus. And we see this this really important contrast between Moses as the mediator of these people and Jesus as our mediator. Here's the verse, Hebrews 3. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Speaking of Christ, Jesus has been counted more worthy than Moses. Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Jesus, greater than Moses, the greatest mediator. And then Hebrews 9.15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. It's Jesus. He's our mediator. Yet Moses was the mediator here in Exodus chapter 20. Think about this, though. 
Moses was a lawbreaker himself. Moses murdered a man. Moses didn't want to obey God. Moses was a lawbreaker. Jesus broke no laws, knew no sin, but he became sin for us, and he died on the cross that we might have his righteousness as we put our faith in him. It's amazing, isn't it? That's how much God loves us. He went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice. He willingly died for our sins and fulfilled God's law. Moses was a picture, a type of Christ. We see it here in Exodus. But Jesus, Jesus was the one that paid the penalty for our sin. Now, God gave these Ten Commandments to Moses. He spoke them, so they heard those Ten Commandments as well. Why? Because they needed salvation. They needed a mediator. And God was confirming now that Moses is going to be their leader as they go into the promised land. Moses is their leader. But notice here, I love the way the text closes, the way it ends here. It's really wonderful in verses 22 to 26. They're going to worship. They're going to build an altar here and worship. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. So God is making this perfectly clear. They've heard the voice. They haven't seen God. They've heard his voice. And then Moses brought those tablets down. Moses brought the law to them. But they've heard his voice, the thundering and all. Verse 23, you shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. And, and the important thing here is to note that they came from an idolatrous culture in Egypt that had many, many you know, pantheon of, of gods and goddesses. And so God, again, he's, he's referring back to his commandments. Don't make anything that resembles me. And then notice in verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. So, Again, after the law is given, after the thunderings and lightnings, after Moses is recognized as mediator, God now calls his people to do what he wanted them to do all along. He wanted to bring them out of Egypt so he might be with them as they worship him. He's calling them to worship him here. But they're fearful. They're running away. But now there's a sacrifice for their sins so they can draw nearer through that sacrifice to God. The sacrifice paid the penalty, although for just a brief time, as we'll see, you know, as, as the nation progresses, God begins to give them, as we study on Sunday nights, Levitical law and how they were to worship God. That's, Leviticus is a book on worship. This is how God wants to be worshipped. This is how you cleanse yourself so you can come clean before the Lord and worship him. And so he calls them to make an altar here. And it's really interesting. The altar is really simple. Look at verse 24, an altar of earth. And then verse 25, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not carve it. Don't carve it. Don't cut it out with tools. 
Just pile up stones. And you'll see the children of Israel as they go through and they meet with God. That's what they, they always pile up stones. You'll see them do. They built an altar. It's just piled up stones. Why? Because God doesn't want the carved, the etched. The, because people start to look at that and they worship that instead of God. Think about other religions that have these ornate idols. I mean, you know, 50-foot-tall Buddhas or or in Brazil, there's that towering Christ, you know, the, of the nations. And then people start worshiping the, shou- the, the, the image rather than God. God said, I don't even want you to cut it, shave it, shape it in any way. Just pile, just a stone. Simple altar of, of the earth. Just, just very simple. And here's the reason why. Because God wants worship and sacrifice to be about him and not about the altar. We were just in Rome a few months ago on our tour, and there are more churches, Catholic churches. They're primarily Catholics, Roman Catholics, Rome. And you go in these churches, and they're fabulous. They are fabulous. They're tall. The, their architecture is fantastic, gorgeous. Most of them built in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Beautiful. And people, uh, they built these churches and there's nobody in them because you begin to worship the columns and worship the idols that are all throughout. They're everywhere. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want fancy. He just wants these, he wants the focus to be on that sacrifice, the blood of that sacrifice, the price that was paid and not the altar itself. The focus is to be on the sacrifice. Again, how does that relate to me? Here's how it relates. You come into a church and you worship the Lord. You don't worship the band. You don't worship the sound. might not even like the sound. I don't know. But you're not to worship those things. You're to worship the Lord. The, the, the church can, we can invest money. We can spend money on musicians. We can, we can try to razzle-dazzle your brain with lights. But that's not worship. We have to be really careful in the church to balance that, right? I mean, I like lights. I was the one that made this stuff. Barry and I made this and put these lights up. I think it's kind of cool. But I never think of worshiping that at all. I just think of a visual, you know, kind of relaxing visual image instead of a mortuary, which is what I thought it looked like before I put that up there. I do funerals and walk into a mortuary. The plants are the plants. They're everywhere, plants. You know, these fake, they're not even real. They're, and it just looks like, man, this is like 60s, duh. But we can get so wrapped up in all of those things that we're not really worshiping the Lord. So God says, simple, earthen. So you can really focus on me. He wants you to focus on the sacrifice and worship him alone. And then notice here in closing, verse 26, nor shall you go up the steps to my altar that your nakedness may be exposed. So he didn't want the altar built up. So he's referring to these idols in Egypt, obviously. And they would put, remember the pyramids? Pyramids, pyramids, how they went up, right? People go up on those pyramids to try to worship God, get closer to the heavens. And God says, I don't want that. Just put a stone on the ground. And I don't want my priests to, sh- to bear their legs, to show flesh. 
In fact, later on in Leviticus, as we work our way through that book, you'll, what happened was they wore robes, but then they had steps. They had so many steps that they had to go up. Then each step, the seven steps, they would go up seven steps, and so 13 steps in another place. And people were down, and they'd worship God, and they'd see the flesh of the leg of the... And so they made the, the priests actually wear a garment all the way down to their toes so their flesh wouldn't be exposed. Again, it's God saying, I want worship to be pure. I don't want your mind going anywhere else. I want you to worship me as, you build, as they built this altar. Very, God doesn't want to see our flesh in worship. He doesn't want us to dance around and look at me and watch what I do, and I hold my hands up higher than the other person, and that's fleshly worship, and God doesn't want that. What does God want in our worship? He wants spirit and truth. And we see that in John 4. Notice this verse behind me. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship two ways, spirit and in, tr in truth. Spirit as opposed to the flesh, and truth there as opposed to just feeling and emotion. Truth. How do we worship God honestly and truthfully? We, we read the word, we understand who he is, and we can really worship a God that's so gracious and kind and forgiving. So these people in this text, they are filled with fear. They run from God instead of approaching God, which is what God wants. And because now they have Moses as a mediator and they have an altar to sacrifice, they can draw closer to God. But you and I can draw close to God even now. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. God wants us to come close because we put our faith in Christ and we're cleansed. We're not running for God, from God anymore. We're running to God. I hope that's your attitude when you come to worship. I hope it's you're running to God, that you desire to draw closer to the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to run to God. You need to understand that he forgives, that it's God's work of salvation, that by, by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, receiving that free gift, Romans 6.23, that you'll have eternal life. God wants to be close. He calls us to be close as Christians, and he calls non-Christians to come close so that he might forgive their sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word tonight. I thank you for this text. I know, Lord, that, that there's so uh, many uh, thoughts that we have as we read the scriptures. I just pray that we would understand the narrative as it is explained verse by verse as we see these people that were so fearful and yet you provided for them so wonderfully. We see these people that were so sinful and yet you, oh, you called them to come worship and make sacrifice for their sin. See these people that were so fearful and yet you provided a mediator for them. Father, we see in your Son, Jesus Christ, our mediator. We see in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we love you and we thank you, God, for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.